Now, boys and girls, it's time again. Again, again, again. This is the PowerShell Podcast. PowerShell Podcast. You girls and boys will have lots of fun. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community. Power to the people. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm host Jordan Hammond with co-host Andrew Plaw. And today we have special guest Mike Robbins, who Microsoft had to hire so other people would have an opportunity to win the MVP occasionally. So yeah, it's, I'm Mike Robbins. I go by Mike F. Robbins. I'm a docs writer for Azure PowerShell at Microsoft. I've been in IT since 1994. I've worked in IT for education, manufacturing, financial and healthcare industries. I'm a published author. I was an MVP for six years prior to joining Microsoft. I've been using PowerShell since at least since 2009 because I started blogging in 2009 and I've been at Microsoft for about two and a half years. Well, we appreciate you hopping over to Microsoft to open up uh, a slot for other people. I shared those MVPs. But joining Microsoft, I've noticed on your blog, you're still active on kind of some of the things that, that got you your MVP in the first place. You did not abandon those when you joined the mothership. So yeah, I kind of I kind of hit the pause button when I first started at Microsoft, just being uh, so busy and trying to get up to speed. But I've gone back to blogging, and something I've gotten into recently is is blogging about using PowerShell on Linux. Yeah, your latest blog was uh, use, installing PowerShell on Arco Linux. That's For those correct. of us that don't know anything about Linux, what is Arco Linux, and how is it different from I guess? So you, what, what you really got. You've really got three main flavors of Linux. One is Debian, which is what Ubuntu is based off of. And then you've also got Fedora, which is, uh, or Red Hat, and Fedora is based off of Red Hat, and CentOS kind of falls in that area too. But then you've got Arch Linux. And Arch is a rolling release where you just constantly get all the latest updates. You never have to like reinstall. And Arco Linux, which is what the blog article's on, is um, is a flavor of Arch Linux. And PowerShell is not officially supported on Arch Linux, so it's community supported. So I thought, hey, I'll write a blog article showing people how to get PowerShell running on Arco Linux. It's kind of the nice thing about uh, PowerShell shifting over to open source is even if it's not officially supported, there's a community to make that stuff work. Yeah, so even Fedora, so I have a machine that runs Fedora as well. And of course, you can do PowerShell remoting um, on Fedora. So you can remote from your Windows machine to your Fedora machine. And PowerShell is also not officially supported on Fedora, although it is supported on Red Hat. So you can just use the same instructions from Red Hat. So uh, you can use, uh, you can download it directly. I'm not sure if it's available from their repos with the DNF command, but um it, it's really neat to be able to run. I also have a, uh, a Mac M1 Mini that I run PowerShell on. And what I try to do, the documentation that I write, I try to test it on all the different operating systems. I try to test it on Windows, Mac OS, and on Linux. Now, when you joined um, Microsoft, uh, you joined as a remote employee? That's correct. So, uh, so I interviewed... What the Redmond interviewed just before COVID. And I think maybe it was like February timeframe. And then every maybe January, February of 2020, 
and everything shut down in March of 2020. So I was supposed to go on site for orientation. Um, but then it's like, hey, nobody's going anywhere. So I was able to do my orientation. I was the first group that did a, a remote orientation. But my position really, the remote had nothing to do with COVID. It was a remote position from day one. So uh, it's they're really a remote first company, especially for like documentation writers and stuff like that. Because that was one of the things I was like, hey, Microsoft may have a trillion dollar market cap or whatever, but they don't have enough money to make me move to Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) And prior to that, were you working from home or were you in an office setting? So I worked from home part time, Uh, even though the company I previously worked for was only maybe 20 minutes away. uh, I would work from home on Wednesdays. So I was familiar with the process. And then we we moved to a satellite office at that previous company. So even when I was in the office, I was not really in the office. I was working remotely in a satellite office. Interesting. Um, I imagine there were a lot of changes moving from a normal employer to an employer like Microsoft and especially moving into document writing, um, which is, I guess, different than your previous job. Yeah, so uh, so I was more of an engineer or architect at my previous employer. Uh, although, you know, I've, I'm a blogger, I'm a published author, and I've written several, self-published several books as well. So I was familiar with, like, at Microsoft, we write with Markdown. So I was very familiar with the Markdown process. And then we use Git because our documentation as well as PowerShell and Azure PowerShell is all open source. So I was very familiar with Git. And I had created the uh, the original PowerShell conference book and worked with 30 authors throughout the world. So I was familiar with working with people in different time zones and collaboration on Git. Uh, so I had a lot of those processes down, but I will say my writing's gotten much better since... Um, starting at Microsoft, I used to write with a passive voice and I purposely wrote with passive voice, but now we more or less write in second person. So it's like, you do this and you do that. And some people will say that that's first person, but it's not, it's second person. Um, And just some other, like, I try to eliminate stop words. Sometimes you have words in a sentence and you can remove those and it doesn't change the meaning of the sentence. It's like filler words. And then also remove a lot of ands and commas and so on and have short, concise sentences. It's kind of, sometimes you'll end up writing a longer article if you don't have time to make it more concise, you might think that something more concise is simpler to write, but it's actually more difficult to only tell somebody exactly what they need to know because you can go out in left field and go down some rabbit hole. And a lot of my blog articles would do that. It would be about one subject, but it would, it would go down into another area of something when I was trying to figure something out and publishing that there's no problem, especially on a blog publishing that, but now I try to break those out into a separate blog article. That's uh, the Hemingway editor, which I've, I've used quite a bit for that is a uh, very aggressive at removing anything extra that doesn't have to be there. But I wonder if we're all trained by school where you have to write a report and it has to have X number of words. It's not about the content. It's you have to have a word count that we just subconsciously start adding unnecessary words and, and spaces and commas in there. And now 
now that we're in the real world, it's like, no, we don't need any of that. It's got to, got to pull it back. Definitely. And to me, the articles are all, all about the code. It's like, hey, this the code is what's important. And then the the English is just to to explain the code or explain the technology. And that's what I try to keep in mind is keeping very, the English and the article very concise, the wording. And then also the the code have it formatted a certain way. And I've slightly changed my coding style since joining Microsoft. I used to have, um, if I wrote if-else statements, I would have a cuddled else. But if you take and copy that into the into the uh, PowerShell console, it doesn't run. You would have to hit Shift-Enter to have the else on a separate line. So I put the uh, the else on the same line as the curly brace for like the if or the if-else, if that makes sense. Oh, and so that, like when PowerShell runs the line, it sees, oh, there's a bracket. We're expecting more because the bracket hasn't closed. That kind yes, of thing. That, that's, that's exactly right. So I try to write in a style that works no matter what the scenario is for the customer. I don't want, because many times people are trying to automate something and they don't really know PowerShell. And that's one of the reasons you, you know, and everybody may not know, but I self-published a PowerShell 101 book. And when I started at Microsoft, what I found is more or less people were trying to build a house without learning how to use a hammer. And what I mean by that is they were trying to automate Azure without learning how to use PowerShell. So I donated the source code of the PowerShell one-on-one book to Microsoft. And it's published as part of their documentation. Wow, that's awesome. We're looking at that. I actually have the set up for that one. So it is free if you want it. But if you do pay, like they have a recommend like if you want to pay eight bucks, then six six $6.39 goes to a cause. So it goes to charity instead of to Microsoft too. So even Microsoft turned around and just putting the proceeds or is that? So, so I... I still uh, control the book on LeanPub, and all the proceeds actually go to the uh, DevOps Collective to the on-ramp scholarship. So you can download it for free. You can read it. Hey, no problem. But if you decide you want to support that cause, um, because the PowerShell conference book, I think Andrew was the first person that got the on-ramp scholarship. So that's kind of why I started the uh, the PowerShell conference books. Is a hundred percent of the proceeds forever went to the scholarships, and it still does. And there's a there quite a few scholarship recipients at this last one. That's pretty yes. cool to see. So I decided to kind of do, I said, hey, I've made my money off the PowerShell 101 book. I will just donate the source code to Microsoft to help people. It's published as part of their docs, but if you want to download the book, you can download it for free. Or if you want to donate something, it'll go to the DevOps Collective. And that book currently has about 25,000 readers just from LeanPub, not counting what when it's read on, on Microsoft's website. It's the most popular PowerShell book on LeanPub by far. That's pretty fantastic. So does this one, does it maintain all the same relevance with uh, PowerShell 7 and things like with the, some of the things changing where it's moving more to the dot uh, net core instead of net or is the you just like a practical application of PowerShell where that kind of stays consistent? So the book is written. It's kind of a snapshot at a point in time, and it's written for Windows PowerShell five one, which uh, I mean I prefer PowerShell seven at this point, but there's probably more users of Windows PowerShell uh, five point one, 
and all the concepts are the same. It kind of reminds me of uh, like Cisco enterprise architects that sure, there's a GUI for their Cisco products. And for us, I think they call their operating system iOS as well, but um, they love the command line because you can take something that you that you configured a Cisco router or switch from 20 years ago and it works today. And it's kind of the same way with PowerShell that you can take something in PowerShell version two, it works today. Now, the biggest change in the syntax was version two to three because you added like a simplified for each and, and where object command, uh, but the old style still works. And at least with the where object, if you're using a compound filtering statement with where object, you still have to use the old syntax if you're using and or or anything like that. But to answer your question, it's a snapshot on version 5.1, although uh, I would say 97% of the content still works on, on version 7. So this is a great time to pause and say, hey, audience members, if you are in that part of your PowerShell journey where you maybe don't have the full foundation or you're trying to do some advanced scripting, but maybe um, don't have all those tools, this is a great starting point. Check out the PowerShell 101 um, and kind of develop those baselines, go through the articles, uh, pave that pathway for yourself. Definitely. And what I would also recommend is give back to the community. I mean, there's all sorts of speaking opportunities and maybe you're not a speaker and maybe you should, maybe you are interested in blogging. So start a blog and maybe you think, Hey, I don't have, I'm not an expert. I don't have anything to give back. Trust me. You know, things that other people don't know. And what I, the book I would recommend reading is be the master by Don Jones, because you might be an apprentice at something, but you're a master at something else. And you don't have to master everything because nobody is a master of everything with PowerShell. Yep. And when he says you, he means you. You know, you're not an exception to that. Everyone um, has something to teach. And if you don't feel comfortable being a speaker, attend a user group and just be active. Just say a couple things. Type in the chat, pay attention, be part of the community. And until you can develop that confidence to kind of take that next step. But for wherever you are, definitely take that next step. Um, and I think this is the second episode in the past month or so where we've given a shout out to Be the Master by Don Jones. Um, it's been a pretty uh, awesome book for me and my journey as well. Very, There's some awesome stuff in there that really kind of changed the way that I approach things. Even if there's not a user group in your area, maybe you'll start one. Maybe you can have a virtual one or join a virtual one. Um, I used to run a user group and we were always looking for speakers and we we had a virtual user group. But then there are on-site conferences. So I used to speak at SQL Saturdays when they were a big thing. And even though it wasn't a PowerShell event, they would let me come talk about PowerShell. And at least this year, so there's PowerShell in the river coming up in Chattanooga in August, and I'll be speaking there. And what I would say is get out, network with the community. And then later this year in December, there's um, the Automation and DevOps Summit in Nashville. But the, the big conference for PowerShell, of course, is the uh, PowerShell and DevOps Global Summit. And it normally takes place in, in Bellevue in the April timeframe. Uh, and I've spoken at it uh, numerous times. But get out, network with the community, because speaking at, and networking with the community is how I got my job I have now. Somebody saw me speak and then a 
position came available and they reached out to me and said, hey, I think you'll be a perfect fit. And it was somebody I met just a few years ago at the PowerShell Summit. Brings up kind of an interesting question for me because you were you were an architect. You were all about production. You controlled all of that space. And then you moved to Microsoft where you're writing documentation and it's no longer a production zone. Uh, I'm curious, how, how do you handle that kind of change? Because it's been, for me, four or five years since I've touched anything production at this point, And it, it still feels weird to me. Like if there's an outage, I still feel like I have to be involved somehow. So one thing I would say is you're still responsible for production environments, even though it's indirectly. So the documentation you're writing needs to be like super accurate. And it, you need to make sure, hey, that you're not accidentally going to delete something. Maybe somebody had a resource group in Azure already that they created this test stuff in. And at the end of the documentation, if you just blow away that resource group, maybe they put it into a production resource group, with they, which they shouldn't do. And if you follow the documentation, then that wouldn't happen. But anyway, you need to be really accurate because you are you are somewhat responsible for your customers' production environments. Uh, so you, you it, it's, it's a, a huge level of responsibility. But it is nice not to be on call. And most of my after-hours work is scheduled. Like I, I meet with the engineering team on Monday nights, and they're, they're in a different country. So it's... Um, the next day for them, and it'll be at night for me. So you do have to work with people in different areas. Um, but it it's to me, it's awesome. If you want to learn something, then you then teach it. And writing is a form of teaching. And it's a very high order form of teaching and a very efficient form of teaching because it scales so well. Um, yeah, I think that the more people we talk to, the more we hear that echoed of how important writing is um you know i guess looking back to myself maybe five ten years ago i would just think oh writing that's not doing but in reality there is a massive responsibility associated with that um very cool and when you're writing i mean think about branding i'm a big believer in personal branding so i'm mike f robbins pretty much everywhere so I go sign up for that on all the services, even though if I'm never going to use it, I just want my brand. That's my brand. And then all my PowerShell modules and commands, my initials are MR for Mike Robbins, but it's also Mr. So it's going to be Mr. Something, uh, Mr. Module for creating PowerShell modules. Um, and all my commands will follow that sequence. But brand yourself the same way. And if you're starting out with, say, WordPress or something like that, I would at least, at a minimum, I would pay for a domain name so that if you outgrow, like, the hosted WordPress solution and you want to move it to something else, which I've moved to Hugo recently, then you can keep all your URLs the same and you don't mess up um, links that people have to your documentation or your search engine um, where it's aggregated the results. I think think it's we said uh, writing is a great way to teach. And at the summit in Seattle this year, you did a talk with Sean Wheeler where you guys basically broke down how to submit documentation for PowerShell, whether it's the Azure space or just the regular PowerShell space. And that is up on YouTube now. So if you're interested in contributing to those forums, you you guys have uh, give, given the talk on ex- basically a step by step guideline on what to do. 
That's exactly right. And it's a way to learn. Maybe you're not a software developer, or maybe uh, you're not at that point in your career yet. Maybe you are like a help desk person or an administrator. But contributing to document open source documentation is a great way to learn Git. And in addition to that, maybe at some point in the future, you might be looking for a position. And if all things are equal and you have contributed to that company's product, then they'll be like, hey, this guy knows our system because he's contributed. So you'll have you'll have a leg up on the competition. Also want to mention, definitely check out our episode if you're interested in contributing to the docs. We have an episode with Sean Wheeler where we cover some of this um, contribution stuff as well. Um, but I think that with the documentation thing, um, yeah, you're learning in public, you're showing a certain amount of expertise, you're showing that you can communicate things, you're showing, you know, you're kind of like a, giving your prospective employers something to base you on rather than just words on a piece of paper. It's a bit easier to understand who you're hiring when you can kind of see their work. Um, and for me as someone, I, I like doing things that show that because, you know, I don't have like a master's degree or advanced degrees or anything like that. You kind of are what you do. Um, and being able to learn while creating that is just so efficient. It makes my brain kind of like have a little party when I think about how efficient that is. Yeah, and so, But it's scary so too at first. So your blog is basically your resume. Instead of having a one-page resume, it's like, hey, when I started at Microsoft, you want to know what I've done? I had 600 blog articles to refer them to. I'm like, just go look at my blog. There's my writing reference. There's my code reference. And when I moved to Hugo, I think maybe last year, I trimmed it down to about 300 articles, but it's uh, it's a kind of like a living resume. And what I used to do is the neatest thing I did for the week, I would blog. I would run it through a test environment or even Photoshop the uh, the screenshots if it wasn't easy to uh, to run through a test environment. But um, it's definitely for your career. I mean, don't expect your employer, maybe maybe they won't send you to a PowerShell conference. Well, the one in Chattanooga is like a, almost like a PowerShell Saturday, and it's very low budget. So, hey, invest in yourself and send yourself. So I'm interested about the your, your blog is like your resume, because I honestly, I, I tend to go with, with jokes a lot. Like uh, I did a, a series on Apex packages, and then one of them was, I've accidentally removed something I want. How do I re-add this Apex package? And the example I put in my blog was uh, installing Candy Crush. And I guess I had some people run that, and they weren't real happy with me. So maybe I should look at more professional examples if it's going to be a resume. I, I think that's a perfect example. And uh, I have similar blog articles where I'm removing all that stuff from a Windows machine. And there's a set of commands where you remove it from the current user, but then there's a set of commands where you remove it from the machine and, and all future users. It's an um, Apex provision package versus just Apex package. Yes. And see, that's the other thing. See, I couldn't remember the details. So what I could do is just go search my blog and find it. And that's helped me in the past when I've been on vacation. A, pre, a former employer uh, or a former supervisor called me and said, hey, how do you remove phishing emails from the Exchange server? And this person didn't know PowerShell. So it's like, good luck telling them how to do it over the phone. So anyway, I said, go to my blog, search for phishing emails. It's the only blog article that had come up. Walked through it step-by-step, problem-solved, end the phone call. Didn't have to come in on vacation and work on it. Yeah, 
I think as technologists, if we could call ourselves that, we're always learning new things. Always. Year-round, job-round, we get a new job, it's a whole bunch. And the way that you store that information for later use um, really will affect how you perform in the long term. And having something like a blog or other way to kind of organize your knowledge is a really great and productive way to handle that task of, I'm always learning new things. How do I pick this back up quickly later? Well, you write a blog and then in your mind, you search for it and you're like, oh, here's the command that I need to run. I don't actually need to memorize all this. I, I wrote the blog and learned it one time and then just pick it up years later. So uh, it's kind of funny that sometimes you'll Google stuff and you'll find your own blog because you forgot you wrote it. And you you mentioned Sean Wheeler earlier. So I worked with Sean some, and we were talking about a PowerShell module for the AST that I wrote. And it's like, yeah, it would be really neat if I did X. And he's like, we well, already wrote that. I'm like, no, I didn't. He's like, yeah, yeah, you did. It's on your blog. <laughs> so I am curious because it seems like at work you do a lot more uh... – Technical writing, and then you have your blog, which is uh, just in the blog format. Do you approach the writing as the same way, like the the same scope? You follow the same steps, or is it different for what type of writing you're doing? I would say the answer is it depends, like many things in technology. But it's all written in Markdown. So even my notes, I use Obsidian, which is a Markdown-based tool, and it saves it in .md files. So if the product is no longer supported, I can open it up with any Markdown editor, but maybe I'm working with a, with a PM at Microsoft and I'm taking some notes in Obsidian. And then he says, hey, you know what? It'd be really great if we could uh, create an article for this. Well, guess what? The notes are already in Markdown, so I don't have to like redo them. And it's the same thing for my blog. It may start out as an outline or notes in Obsidian, and then I can just use the same file or copy and paste the source code and so I use Hugo, as I mentioned, which is is Markdown, and I, I publish my blog on Netlify. So my blog costs me zero except for a domain name. It costs absolutely nothing. And anyway, at, at work, so we, we use a doc system, but it's based on GitHub, and it's also based on Markdown. And we do have some custom things in the Markdown for Microsoft. So there's a few things I can't use on my blog, but for the most part, I approach it the same way. So at least since in the last year, anything you read on my blog is going to be very professionally written. And one of, you know, I mentioned that I, I got rid of about three, 300 blog articles, and many of those were self-promotion type stuff, like, hey, my MVP was renewed or whatever. And it didn't bring value to the people that read it. So the other thing about a blog article is it's copy and paste the error messages you might get into the text instead of just having a screenshot. And a, a screenshot is fine as well, but the screenshot won't be indexed by your search engine. So that way, somebody's going to be searching for the error, and they'll find your blog article. That's a good tip. Um, one tip that you gave us back at PowerShell Summit, you mentioned that um, you listened to some of the episodes and you had some feedback. And one was that we did not highlight PS Readline enough. And ever since then, I've been tooting that PS Readline horn. Um, and the latest release of PS Readline is freaking awesome. I love 
the um, predictive text, whatever that's enabled by default now. I've been, it seems like every episode I make a shout out to it. Um, so I'm not sure if this has been fixed, but I did notice with previous read line, because you can hit, I think it's F2 to go from table to list view. But I did notice that one of the things about testing on different operating system is that is not enabled by default on Linux. So the F2 does not work, but you can add, you can add a line to your profile and I should blog that because I have all these different things. I talked to somebody about, hey, you want to clear the line and I have some hotkeys to do that now um, that you can hit escape and it'll clear the line just like it would in the normal console. Uh, but there's all sorts of tips and tricks. And in addition to PS Readline, we uh, we have predictive IntelliSense for Azure PowerShell. It's the AZ predictor. So if you're using Azure PowerShell, that is a huge benefit because we have like 6,000 commands in the AZ module. And you've got to type so much of it before you can hit tab that it's it's uh, it's insanity. So the predictive IntelliSense, it just helps tremendously with narrowing down your options. The, you're talking about the F2 not working with the, I assume, are you still using v, uh, Visual Studio Code in Linux or do you use a different uh, editor? Um, so I was using the, I was actually using the, uh, like the terminal, oh, the terminal and using okay. PowerShell, which is very similar to like using the PowerShell console, but I also do use VS Code. And I haven't tested it in VS Code, or I don't remember if it worked in VS Code, but I don't think it did. But that's one of the reasons I'm like, hey, I can just load Linux on this other system and do some testing, because all the tools that I use on Windows, like VS Code and PowerShell and the PowerShell extension for VS Code and all the extensions for VS Code, and even Hugo for publishing my blog articles, it all works on Linux. At a certain point in time, were you experimenting with the Raspberry Pi with PowerShell? So I have not experimented on the Raspberry Pi, but that's a good idea because I do have two Raspberry Pis. I have, uh, have redundant Pi-hole servers to block ads, and it blocks about 30% of my internet traffic. And I have like a wiring closet that's uh, what you would find in an enterprise and a small business probably. Uh, so I have a couple of 12-port patch panels mounted to the wall, and one's for security cameras and the other one's for hardwired connections. And then I have a couple of access points in the house mounted to the ceiling on each end. Um, and all this is a uh, ubiquity unify equipment. Um, so anyway, I have those Raspberry Pis mounted in that closet and they provide DNS. And what I've found is some programs have gotten smart enough that they just default to Google. They don't use your network settings. So what I've done on my firewall is block all outbound DNS. It has to go through the Raspberry Pis. And so I have multiple VLANs on my network. Like my work computer is the only computer on the on this VLAN. And it's because you never know what your employer's doing on your network and they don't need to see all my equipment. So it's on a VLAN. My kids, you know, you never know when they're gonna get a virus. So they're on a VLAN. And at like at 10 o'clock at night, their their wireless goes away automatically and comes back the next morning. Uh, and then I think I have four VLANs, but there it took some special configuration on the Raspberry Pi to have it setting on multiple VLANs with different IP addresses on the different VLANs. 
because that way your DNS traffic doesn't have to cross VLANs. And I should probably blog that too. So are you automating parental responsibility? Because this could be a big, big subset. Parenting's uh, hard. <laughs> oh yeah, it's definitely hard. And one thing about the, uh, the Ubiquity Unify equipment, you can see where the traffic is going and it gives you some nice graphs, but you can drill down. And then uh, what I do is I forward my DNS traffic, traffic to OpenDNS. So then I do some additional filtering with OpenDNS. So like nobody's going to go to a porn site or something like that. Or maybe there's some other sites I don't want them going to. So maybe the Raspberry Pi doesn't block that because it's just, uh, and you can get different lists. But I do a couple of different levels of filtering just to make sure that I've filtered the traffic all I want. Because um, my kids, I mean, they, they do have computers and all that sort of stuff, of course, which probably uh, most kids do nowadays. Uh, and you'd be surprised the traffic that comes out of different products, you know, like a Roku. I don't know if you were at the PowerShell Summit and you were listening, and Smart TVs, and you were listening to some of these different sessions. Uh, I think James Brundage presented that session. And it was very interesting. You could do some automation with your TV and stuff, but the traffic and um, I was just very particular about the traffic and what my devices are doing. You just never know what's going on. I mean, we we have a lack of trust for these for these repositories, kind of like the PowerShell Gallery, because you know people they don't they don't vet that content. That who knows who wrote it, but I found that open source. There are people that are going through the source code, so I trust open source much more than I cl trust closed source because you you can't see the the code with closed source, and you never know what a company's ulterior motive is, what type of telemetry they're collecting, and if they're telling you they're collecting that. Yeah, but you know, I think we've seen over the past couple of years, just being open source doesn't mean that they're all necessarily vetted and things can still happen with those repos. But when compared to closed source, you you got not, there's no pros for the whole, well, yeah, it's a different world when you can actually see the code. But so you say James Brundage did a session on that at Summit? He did, he did a session on that. And I think in the same session, he was talking about smart lights and different things and automating, uh, it was very interesting. You're speaking Jordan's language, especially when you talk about blocking the devices from communicating and all that. <laughs> it broke down. I just got a, a ring doorbell. It's the first thing that I have that. Dude, have all this talk. Are you serious? <laughs> well, it, it came down to uh, my wife told me I was going to get it. And so here we are. <laughs> I guess you took too long to plan the whole home automation thing. You should have just gone. But we were talking earlier about be the master, and I'm the master of procrastination. I just never got around to it. Me too. <laughs> it's yeah. It's easy to... My desire to do new things is greater than my time and energy to actually accomplish said tasks. Definitely. Um, so, and what I've tried to do, I've learned to focus on on what's really important to me, you know, like I really want to learn something, you know, like PowerShell and Linux. So I'll make sure I make time for that. And that means some other things aren't going to get done, but that's okay. I mean, ultimately when people say, when they tell you no, or I'm too busy or I don't have time, 
it means that whatever they're talking about isn't important enough for them to make time for it. But you have to pick and choose. I mean, it's just like with your career. I mean, some people are perfectly happy with operating in the GUI, and that's fine. There's jobs for that. The main thing I would say is if you're going to operate in the GUI, put the GUI like, like the RSET tools on your desktop and don't manage servers from the server. And that's why I started installing at my previous employer. I started installing servers with server core. So if they RDP'd into the server, they would just get a console and that's it. Yeah, that goes a long way to helping adopt more command line and remote usage. I think uh, once you start moving out of impacting single machines or or low, like the more machines you uh, impact, the the more likely you are to have to adapt using command line. Yeah, when you're looking at a company, that's one thing I would ask is, hey, what type of automation tools do you have? Do you have a command line interface if you don't have a PowerShell module? But if if a company comes in and they say, yeah, we hate PowerShell, then their product is probably not going to scale very well. Um, if you had a point and click in the GUI all day, and that's something, maybe it's a cheaper product, but your job as an architect or an engineer is to let management know that, hey, it's going to require an FTE to manage this product because they're going to have to sit there and point and click all day long it, you know, for any issues that can't be automated. So the product that costs half as much now costs a lot more by the time you have to pay an FTE. I think that... Yeah, for me and my journey from going from the GUI to more like administering more machines and stuff was I was I, I started to actually think about the larger problems. So like say there's an issue that's fixed by a quick script. Okay, you can create a script and kind of rerun it whenever the issue comes up. But thinking bigger, we have all of our machines. How are we handling the configuration? What are the policies that are being applied? That kind of thing. And then you're solving core issues to... Um, your whatever system, wherever you work, you're solving core issues that are going to provide huge returns over time. And you can actually really kind of get control of your environment and make your work life a lot more rewarding and quite a bit easier. Yeah, and it's a lot funner that we had a reporting environment in my previous employer. And what I would do, I had scripted where I would stop the necessary services, I would take a backup of the uh, production database, and I would roll it into reporting. So every you know, every week that was done and it was automated. It was at night. It just happened. So it eliminated manual work. And there's different ways to do that. You could use some SQL technologies like log shipping and different things. But we decided just to use a PowerShell script because it met our needs. And my boss also knew that, hey, if he uh, if he didn't want it, didn't want it done with PowerShell, he should probably give it to somebody else. Because even if I had to put the square peg in the round hole with PowerShell, I'd probably do that just to see if it was possible. Learn a lot of lessons doing that. Yeah. If ever get as, hey, can you do something in PowerShell? The answer is always yes. And then I, you got to go prove yourself right. Like it's never yeah. been, no, I don't think so. It's like, I'm not sure yet, but yes. It's kind of like mass copying files that I've done that. PowerShell is not the best product for doing that. If you just want to transfer all the files, like with the permissions and everything, from one volume to another system, you should probably just use RoboCopy because it's multi-threaded. It has parameters for getting the permissions and all that stuff. It's a better product for that 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 problem. Uh, but can you do it with PowerShell? Definitely. 
the answer is always yes. It's is it is it uh, the most efficient, and how much time are you willing to spend on it? I would say you are doing it with PowerShell, like because you're using PowerShell to call an external tool that is the right tool for the job, and you're you know wrapping it however needed, however you need to, and you know maybe you don't need to, but PowerShell is still kind of doing it. Yeah, and that's that's one thing. So if you uh, even if uh, a vendor doesn't have PowerShell support, if they have an API or they have a command line interface, you can all, always write your own functions, and that way. A lot of times you have lower skilled people that don't, they don't want to write their own commands, but they don't have a problem running commands. And what you can do is you can write commands so it makes it easier for them. And the same, you have the same look and feel from the other, maybe they create users with PowerShell. Well, they, those commands you create, it has the same look and feel as the built-in PowerShell commands by Microsoft. So that way, it's very easy for them to transition from creating users to managing something else. And, and there's starting to become a lot of modules out there that will help you with building things where an API is involved to help you build those uh, functions and, and modules around it. Yeah, and when you're doing that, you can also blog about it. And a lot of what I hear a lot of times is people say, well, that's already been done. Somebody's already done it. Don't worry about if somebody's already done it everybody's perspective is different. And somebody somebody else in the industry could have read those previous blog articles and maybe they didn't get it. But maybe you have a different perspective and you write it in such a way that they read your blog article and it's like a light bulb goes off and it's like, okay, now I understand. There's always people new coming into the industry as well. And one problem, of course, even with Microsoft's documentation if you go look at the published date and it's more than about six months old, then most people think, hey, this is not up to date. It's not relevant. So they always want fresh content. And your blog would be newer than the older stuff. So it would be fresh content because I'm even guilty of that. I'll go search and I'll say, hey, just give me what's been published in the last year on the search engine. Because there are different ways of doing things in PowerShell. And some of the newer ways of doing things are going to be give you better performance and be more efficient. I think it's a, the marketing calls it skyscraper. You you take what's already there and then you you build on on top of it and make it your own. So it's it's uh, nothing against using a framework of what someone has done and still adding your own flair or a different take to it. Yeah, and it you know you can build on to what somebody else has done because I, I recently wrote a blog article about format wide and PowerShell not working with strings. And I showed how you could make it work. Well, then Jeff Hicks, I think the same day I published the article, he wrote an article and he created a function to accomplish what I was showing how to do manually. So it was really neat. It was a nice collaboration that we didn't plan. And he linked to my article. And after he published his, I went and added a link to his to say, hey, Jeff, Jeff uh, kind of continued the story. I had mentioned earlier, so I write documentation for Azure PowerShell. And just to give you an idea of what that consists of, so we have we have a newer module that's called the AZ PowerShell module. It has about 6,000 commands. It uses a Azure Resource Manager behind the scenes. Um, you can manage almost everything in Azure. Now we also have an AZ preview module. And the preview module contains every all the GA modules that from the AZ module plus all the previews. 
So if we have something new, maybe it's for Kubernetes, maybe it's for container apps, maybe it's not GA yet, but it's in the preview module. So that's the one I normally install, but I would be very careful installing or depending on the preview modules because we have a breaking change policy where with GA modules, we only have breaking changes twice a year, but preview modules don't have to adhere to that. Uh, so they're kind of, you know, in an older tech, uh, terminology, they would be more like beta modules, but sometimes there are no changes to it, but occasionally you'll have a change. And usually if, even if there's a change of the command name, they'll add an alias into a breaking change window. Uh, then we have what's called feature previews and feature previews are previews for existing GA modules. They will be version one and higher, and you would have to use the allow pre-release parameter of install module for those. But the ones that have never had a GA release will be less than version one, and you don't have to use the allow pre-release uh, parameter to install those. But then we have another module called the Azure RM module, and it's the older module. No new uh, development is going into that module unless there's a security or a day loss issue or something like that. But deprecation's been announced for it. It's Windows only. So that's the reason we no longer recommend it for, for customers. The, the difference is the AZ module is cross-platform. So you can use it on Linux, on Mac OS, on Windows, anywhere where PowerShell 7 runs. Then we have a third module that is the uh, Azure module, which is for the classic um, service management module. So it um, is for like creating classic VMs and the older Azure stuff. So uh, it's probably not what you're looking for unless you're a customer who has some older stuff already running in Azure. Um, there can be some issues if you install Azure RM and you're you're trying to install both AZ and Azure RM. If you install Azure RM in the all users path of Windows PowerShell, that bleeds over into PowerShell 7 because PowerShell 7, the PS module path includes the Windows PowerShell all users path. So if you do wanna have both on the same machine, you need to install it in the uh, current user scope. So you would have Azure RM in Windows PowerShell and then AZ in PowerShell 7. So it is possible to do that, but you can't use them in the same environment at the same time. Awesome. Um, do you have any links for that we could put in the show notes? Uh, I do. I do. Awesome. So if I was using the Azure preview one and say I'm using the, use the Kubernetes as an example, is there anything that identifies that as only a preview or so like if I'm working in something and I know if it's something that's general availability or preview. So if I run into an issue, I, I might approach it differently if it is preview versus not, or is it just kind of, it lumps it all in as one at that point if you so, uh, do the preview. So if you install just the AZ module, you don't get any of the previews. So you know that it's only production. If you're using Cloud Shell, that's what you're gonna have as well. You're gonna have only the GA modules. But the, the main thing that would identify if you uh, if you were using uh, Kubernetes, like, so it would be uh, az.aks for that module. And that one may be, um, it may not be preview any longer. I know that contain, I'll use container apps. So the, the container apps I know is preview. Um, 
And when you would uh, run get module list available on that particular module, it would show less than version one. That would be the key thing that would tell you that, hey, it's a preview. Uh, if you go to the documentation, um, and I won't, I won't be specific on that. Uh, I don't remember exactly where it says it's preview on there, but the, the number one thing I would do, if you run get installed module or get module, and you look at the version of the module, it would tell you it's for less version one. But if you have issues, hey, report them. The uh, Azure PowerShell GitHub repo, and I can provide a link for the show notes for it as well. That's where you would want to report any product type issues, whether it's preview or not. If you have a documentation issue, that's going to be in the uh, Azure Azure Docs PowerShell repo. Very cool. Lots of Azure awesomeness. Now, um, you mentioned Cloud Shell, and I know what it is, but for the people at home who maybe haven't heard of what Cloud Shell is, what is the Cloud Shell? So most people think that uh, Cloud Shell is a web-based interface, and for the most part, it is, and you can run you can run Azure PowerShell or Azure CLI from Cloud Shell without having to install either one locally. But one thing that's really neat about Cloud Shell is if you have Windows Terminal installed, you can add a tab for Cloud Shell. So it almost seems like it's running locally, but it does run in Azure. So it's like module as a service, almost? It's almost like... It reminds me of back in the day when I was doing implicit remoting. I would not have a module installed, but I would have it like I would be connected to a machine that had it installed through implicit remoting. And when I would run it, it would run it on the other machine and not on my machine. So that's what it reminds me of, but I think it's a little bit different. I think it's just bringing you the web interface uh, to a tab within uh, Windows Terminal. And within that cloud shell, don't you like have access to all your Azure resources and whatever else? You do. You can do anything in cloud shell that you can do from installing the AZ PowerShell module locally or Azure CLI locally. Um, and you can have multiple tabs, so you could be do doing multiple things. But yes, you have access to create anything that your user has access to. So uh, if you've got full access, if you're an admin on your subscription, then you've got full rights. And what you run in that Cloud Shell environment will affect your subscription. So if you deleted a resource group from within Cloud Shell, it's going to delete it for real in your subscription. So no, no random so deletes, I guess I'll use in that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's more with a Linux mindset, right? Where they trust you to know what you're doing. So if you do something that breaks it, they're just going to allow it to happen instead of just saying, are you sure? And a, a lot of times, um, so you do have like a confirmed preference. So if you're going to do something like remove a resource group, it's going to say, are you sure you want to do this? And if you want to be double careful, you can add the dash confirm or the dash what if parameter to your command. And it'll tell you what it would do instead or confirm if you're using the confirm preference. Um, a lot of people, they're worried about, you know, that they think that you have more permissions when it comes to PowerShell and you don't. You can't do any more with PowerShell than you can do through the GUI. You can just do it a lot faster. So you can either do really good with it or if you, because uh, you can you can break stuff in the GUI, but you can break it a lot faster in PowerShell. Very true. Um, 
So I have a couple questions. So to circle back to what we were talking about earlier with writing, um, and you've been writing for a long time now, right? You said Microsoft's MVP for six years, been public or a bunch of books, all kinds of stuff, right? Blogs, um, and now writing for Azure. But for people who are like way early and they haven't posted maybe their first thing at all, um, and they're kind of afraid and dealing with that kind of first, ah, how am I going to do it? Um, fear that some of us have. What would you recommend? What are some pieces of advice you'd give them? So one thing I would say is if me personally, I would just put it out there because at my previous employer, I didn't have anybody who could, uh, I didn't have a mentor or anybody. I didn't have anybody to proofread my content or my code. And I basically got free code reviews by blogging because even I mentioned Jeff Hicks earlier, he came by on some of my initial blogs and he basically said, I think his wording was like, cut the crap, you know, just do, instead of doing all this other, do it this way. And then he came back and said, well, actually you could do it with one liner this way. So uh, it was really helpful. And so I, the first book that I took part in was the PowerShell Deep Dives book. And that was a project that D Jeff headed up. And anyway, I wrote a chapter in that book and he said, hey, why don't you uh, format your code a little bit? And I'm thinking to myself, it is formatted because I honestly didn't know the difference. And now I know what he's talking about. But um, one thing you could do is reach out to somebody in the community and have them proofread your, your content, some of the initial content, before you publish it. Especially it's like your first two or three blog articles. I mean, nobody's going to proofread every article for you. But just to give you some confidence and get some feedback before it goes public. And then once you've published a fair amount um, and you think you're really good, then go post it on Reddit so you can get some uh, some feedback. <laughs> Reddit is uh, the most nitpicky place that you can go to. There, there are people that have very strong beliefs on any subject, no matter what it is. So. I'd be careful with going to Reddit. You will get feedback, but it's not always going to be what you're looking for. Yeah, and I would probably not go there initially. I would wait until I've been writing for a while. And then if you want to, uh, you know, somebody to really critique your work, that would be a good place. Um, so there's another site called Planet PowerShell. And that's a good place to uh, to get the word out about your blog. So you can go sign up and they'll tweet your blog articles. So uh, I have mine signed up uh, and several people that are blogging, they've got their signed up there. The other thing I would say, if somebody reaches out to you and gives you an opportunity, then do your best to try to take advantage of those opportunities because, uh, and maybe every one of them is not for you and maybe you just can't do it. But if you get a, ch a chance to write a chapter in a book, uh, or to take part maybe in a week-long blog series where other people that maybe are have more traffic on their blog can send you some traffic, then that would be great. But sometimes when people ask, ask you uh, about an opportunity, if you don't take advantage of it, then they may not ask again. Uh, and of course, one thing, I've, I used to say yes to everything, and I used to fulfill all that, but I've had to learn to say no because there's only so much time in the day. It's kind of like there's a sequel Saturday in Baton Rouge coming up, and I think it's the weekend before PowerShell on the River. And I would like to go to both, but I just can't do both. I can't do travel that much two weeks back to back.
But at one point in time earlier in my career, I would have done them all. I was doing stuff like every week. You're a PowerShell FOMO. Fear, fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. That's exactly right. I think it's good to know what works for you and to over the years kind of as we change or as our priorities change to respect ourselves and be like, yo, two conferences back to back is too much. It will lead to, you know, I'll be tired. It'll throw me off my rhythms and make it so I can't keep delivering in all these other areas that I've determined are important to me. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate that because as I've gone through life and as I keep, you know, growing up and whatever, I have to keep slightly adjusting. Um, what works for me and kind of changing my life circumstances in small ways to accommodate that. Um, and it's definitely a juggling act at times, it feels. And sometimes you have to put the bill yourself. I mean, I've paid for numerous conferences that I've gone to myself. And I tell people, yeah, I used to go to LSU and speak and Georgia State University and speak in different places. And they say, oh, well, your employer or whoever paid for that. I said, no, I paid out of pocket for it. And they said, well, I'm not going to do that. And a lot of times that's the reason that other people don't have the same opportunities because networking, getting your name out there, it can help open up additional opportunities. And it's very similar to the two conferences I mentioned that I'm doing later this year. I emailed my uh, boss at Microsoft and said, hey, is there any budget available for that? And I haven't heard back, but I said, hey, I'm going to do it anyway. That uh, If they'll pay for it, then that's great. But if not, it's something I want to do personally, and it'll help keep me marketable. Yeah, and it definitely kind of depends on where people are in their careers. And there's different kind of levels of investment they can make. You mentioned PowerShell Saturday. I think that's like 100, 150 bucks, something like that. Um, that's pretty uh, entry level. But also, if you're uh, not able to quite afford that, there are, like you mentioned, scholarship opportunities um, for attending Summit and other things uh, so definitely keep your eyes open. And I can say that going through the rest of our careers in tech or whatever we do, we can choose to develop relationships with other people who are doing the same thing and develop friendships over the years and kind of be part of a community yeah. that feels good. And you can see, you know, it's just, it's better to belong to something. You can kind of have that as part of your life or you could not. Um, for me, I prefer having that sense of community and kind of, industry and friends um, and it brings a lot of value outside of just the whole let's have a fun career but career opportunity job security there's a lot of benefits to getting out there and getting involved yeah, once definitely. again i find myself on the uh, opposite side because you said if you can't find a company to pay for it pay for your own uh, i found a company that would pay for it and then i forgot to submit my expense report so i chose to pay for my own yeah i bet you could still send it <laughs> Oh, it feels weird at this point. It's been months. And one thing to keep in mind, so at least most of the PowerShell conferences, if you're a speaker, they you you get free admission. So if you have to pay for it yourself, hey, you can go and present and that adjusts that you don't then you don't have to pay anything for the conference. Then it's only uh, you know, travel and meals or whatever. And even what I've done in the past, so I I uh, shared a hotel room with a uh, with another speaker, so that way we split the cost of a hotel room in half. Um, but I've um, I've done all sorts of things like that just to uh, to be able to be out there, and to me it's a lot of fun. It's kind of like when you're working on this script, you know, and 
it's like you do something amazing. It's like hitting the lottery, you know, and it's like, man, I've got to share this. So then you want to go speak about it or you want to go blog about it. Well, for, um, for your blogs, there's one I read for about five weeks ago that uh, about turnier operators. And I'm, I'm wondering if you're going to be able to sell me on this because with, for me, turnier operators, the moment you use it, your script is no longer backwards compatible to Windows PowerShell 5.1. And it's less readable, which is one of the key values of PowerShell is how readable something is. So I, I guess, what, what is the case for using Turner? Am I wrong that it's just more readable and I don't know, understand how to read it? Or am I missing something here? Wait, what does ternary even mean? This is a weird word. I just know there's there's colons and question marks and it does things. I, I, can't, I can't read them. <laughs> so it's... Uh... It's a syntax where you have your pipes at the beginning of the line so that you can line up all your all your code. And it's very similar to uh, the Kusto query language or KQL. Um, if you go out to my blog, micaprobins.com, it's, uh, I think it's the third article down at this point. Maybe, maybe not. Oh, so that one was different. No, uh, I'm wrong. Uh, I was thinking of something else. So that's a simplified if-else statement. But there's several different things that PowerShell 7, I think it was the, the next one down I was thinking about, where it's formatted like KQL. Um, yeah. Usually what I do, so I like to learn the new features. So that way, if I see somebody using the new features, I, I won't be like, hey, that's not valid. Um, and I'll know that it's valid and it's only in 7, because I like to know the differences between the different versions. Um, and what I've learned, I used to give my opinion on my blog, like, just like you said, it's like, Hey, I would never use this cause it's less readable, but I try to just state the facts because with the one that's formatted with the pipe at the beginning, um, like KQL, I kind of felt like I would never use that. And I got some feedback from the community that I, I, I don't think I would have ever gotten if I would have come, come out and say, yeah. Um, who would do this, you know, but, and it was very valid feedback and it was very specific. It's like, Hey, I'm writing everything in PowerShell seven anyway. And I like the way that this lines up and it makes it easier to read. Um, so, oh, so for them, it was more readable then. It was more readable. Um, okay. but yeah, so that's one thing I do. Like I said, I try to learn the new features because most of these features came out with version seven. And we're at version um, 7.25 or something like that now. Um, so there's been numerous features added even in these uh, minor releases. And it's like, hey, I haven't, I haven't learned anything other than maybe some of the major, major stuff, which is like the for each parallel and different things like that. Yeah, I, I uh, broke them down when PowerShell 7 first came out. Just to, I learned them so I could talk about it on a webcast. But at the end of it, I don't know, maybe it's just it was outside of my comfort zone and it wasn't backwards compatible. And at the time, I liked I liked 6, but it wasn't uh, a real replacement for it as PowerShell. And I guess I was expecting something similar for 7, and boy, was I wrong. PowerShell 7 is amazing. But it, it was just one of those, I, I learned it, and then I instantly forgot it because it, it wasn't, I guess, within how I function. I, I guess maybe that's a weak way to approach it. It just felt like it wasn't readable to me, but maybe it's just because I'm not familiar enough with them. And the backwards compatibility was a pretty big one. Yeah. So, uh, of course, we support uh, Azure PowerShell and Windows 5.1 and PowerShell 7. 
So everything that I'm writing, at least for work today, has to work on PowerShell 5.1, even though uh, PowerShell 7 is my daily driver at this point. I actually had to open up the ISC recently for some reason, and I haven't opened it in like two years. So, uh, so it's like, wow, you know, this is way different than VS Code. Definitely is um, VS Code. I've, I keep falling more in love with. Jordan, have you customized your VS Code yet? Uh, no. Well, no, that's not true because we did it live in the webcast where I put the context-specific hotkey. So if you're in the console, F1 opens up oh. the help documentations. If you're in the script editor, it opens up the command palette. So one thing I did like back in the ISC days is I had ISC steroids, the addition, and you could break out the output pane on a separate monitor. But what I've figured out with VS Code, you can put the uh, you can put the terminal on the right side, and then you can drag the entire thing across on two monitors and put the break right at the point of the two monitors. So although it's one program, it's spanning two monitors, and you have the output on the second monitor. Nice. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges with Electron apps is the whole multi-window thing. Um, but interesting, you just drag that. It's a real wide screen. It gives you a lot more area to, uh, so I have one monitor, I'll, I kind of like a monitor that's dead centered and it's horizontal. And then I have the same type of monitor, 24 inch that's vertical on one side. And then I use, uh, I use my laptop as a third monitor for email or whatever. The vertical monitor is like things like email or reading documents is is huge. I I, uh, I made fun of it a lot, and then I tried, maybe maybe that's how I am with all things. Instantly, I hate it, and then I try it. I'm like, oh, you know what? This is pretty great. Maybe yeah. I just need to be less of a negative person. <laughs> I'm on the vertical screen, but I tell you what, if I could just have a huge one monitor setup, I would like a big old 4K display. Um, but I got three monitors: two horizontal, and then one one vertical friend over there. So your monitor is so, always laughing at you. So I have another desk over here that's got my personal system on it. And I gave my son my my monitor recently. Um, so I had a 43-inch TV, 4K TV. So I said, hey, I'll just stick the 43-inch TV up there and use it as a monitor. So I'm still kind of testing that. But to me, it's too tall. That's good if you're building like a dashboard or something. But I don't know yeah. about for a daily driver. Come on. No, uh, so a lot of people, I mean, that's the future, man. That's at least what I hear. A lot of people really enjoy that one monitor, tons of pixels. They get their little work zones or whatever figured out in Windows 11 and things shoot to the right spot. Well, with all things, you're going to have to drag me into the future. I'm not going to go willingly. I'll drag and drop you. <laughs> so I do have a question, and I wanted to bring this up for our audience because we've never mentioned this variable that you're about to hear about. Stay tuned. Um, I was looking through your blog, and I was like, oh, what are some good takeaways that we can give, some quick wins for our audience? And I'm seeing one right here that I've used before, this variable, to greatly increase or decrease friction when using commands. Because you guys, there's some commands that you use and... There's like a parameter that should always be set. Like with um, convert to CSV, no type information. Um, with no type information makes it so there's not like a the type of the object at the top. Um, so we want to have that on. Well, 
what you can use, according to Mike Robbins' blog, is the dollar sign PS default parameter values preference variable. Um, do you recall that article? I'm I'm going back three years ago, but I do. And something else in that article was also I create a variable that stores the output of your last command in it. So if you run this command, so it, I don't know if you if you remember uh, Ed Wilson, the scripting guy that used to work at Microsoft. But one thing he taught me is if you're going to eat an elephant, only eat it once. And what he meant by that is if you're going to query something that takes like forever to run, store the results in a variable so that you can work with the variable and prototype whatever you want to do. Well, sometimes you run a command and you don't know it's going to take forever to run. And then it's like, hey, I should have stored that in a variable. But the same article shows you how that every single command you run, the last command is automatically stored in a variable. So that way you have that. And you don't have to like say, oh, well, yeah, I should have used this uh, this parameter or whatever or done this differently. It's like, well, I have it in a variable. So instead of having to wait 10 more minutes for the results, I can just use the contents of the variable and work with the data. Um, we have a link to that in the show notes. Definitely check that out. Um, I recommend checking out what settings are in the script, or sorry, in the blog for the dollar sign PS default parameter values and kind of um, basing yours off of that. And for me, when I was doing this in my previous job, I had this stuff saved in my profile um, just so that it loads every single time you open up PowerShell, boom, your preferences are set for those default parameter values. Right out of the gate, install module allow clobber and force set to true by default. That is that that that's worth the entire blog right there. That's those are some wins. Um, so yeah. Another another great one in there is uh, receive job keep because you, if you ever run something as a job and then you receive it, and it's like oh, well, I just deleted my results, but it specifies keep by default so that it keeps the results. You have default encoding for out file. Like you can do some. I'm. I I, uh, I might actually customize some things in VS Code. Let's go customize that profile, man. Profile.ps1. Let's do it. All right, I'll do it. So, and the name of that blog article is "What's in Your PowerShell PS Default Parameters Value Preference Variable." Yeah, this one is. Uh, I'm I'm definitely going to dive into that because there's. I, there's a lot of little things that I forget to add at the end of all kinds of commands that always causes issue. And this seems like the best way to remove that going forward. And some things you blog are just timeless. Like this blog article in particular was written on August 1st, 2019. So you're looking at that's uh, three years old. So it was written three years ago. And there's no way that I would remember. It's like, hopefully I stored this on GitHub or maybe my profile or something like that. But I can just go look at it. And even if you had the code, maybe you don't have the details of why I made decisions. And you don't want to write a book for comments in your code. You, It is a good idea to have some comments, but you can have all the details of why you made specific decisions that you're going to forget about in those blog articles that talk about the code. Now, if I'm under, if I'm remembering correctly, you do you work alongside Josh Stephanie, or I guess have you? Or are you both on the same team? Um, so we used to be on the same team. 
And uh, Josh actually started writing documentation for Go. And I saw recently on social media that Josh has taken a position as a cloud developer or cloud advocate. Advocate, uh, yes. Advocate, yes. So he's moving on to a different part of Microsoft um, to advocate for the cloud. Yeah, but I uh, I do work on the team with a uh, with a number of rock stars. I work on the team now with uh, Sean Wheeler, Mikey Lombardi, Tim Warner, just to mention a few. Wow. Okay, so you're on the I thought you're on the Azure Docs team, but that's also connected with the PowerShell team. So we uh, we recently had a reorg that aligned me with uh. So I work on the same team as the uh, the documentation writers for pa the PowerShell team and for Azure CLI and for Terraform and Ansible. So uh, all the fun stuff. That's exciting. I will say that working at Microsoft and even the position I have now, it's the, I, I've worked at about nine different places in IT and I've had some great jobs, but this is the best job I've ever had. It's fun to get up and come to work. And all I do is PowerShell all day, every day. It sounds like the dream. And I get to work with the people who are making the decisions of, you know, about future commands. And they ask my input based on uh, my experience. That's awesome to hear. We have a community member on the inside. You have several. Yeah, you, do. you have several community members on the inside, which I think is awesome because that's one of the reasons I try to stay active in the community, even though I'm not an MVP, um, is to know what direction the community is going and to, to be a voice inside Microsoft for the community. Because sometimes, you know, I was asked one, one day about, hey, would you do this command? would you take option A or B? And I'm like, I wouldn't take either one. I would do something else because uh, that's not how the community would want it done. So kind of reverse politician. You actually care about what <laughs> the community wants. That's exactly right. I care about what the community wants. Ultimately, it makes my life easier. I mean, even most of what I do, it makes my job and my life easier because um, when I blog, I'm really blogging for myself, so I remember how I did something in the future, but then other people find it valuable. And then I learn these things with Azure and I write about it for Microsoft. Um, and then even the decisions on the commands, like I was just mentioning, um, at some point I may be at a different employer and I may be an architect or something. And then it's like, hey, I helped design these commands so that they'll make they'll it'll be easier for me to do what I need to do for this company. I mean, it's all about the customer. I mean, that's really what you have to think about. I mean, when we're making decisions, you think about what impact is this this decision going to make on our customers? You have to be customer focused, and I think if uh, some companies they just kind of lose touch with that. That's where shifting to open source is so valuable because it also gives the customers a direct link to say, give their opinions or thoughts and help help uh, form where it's going. Yeah, and if you have feedback, definitely log it in our GitHub repos because that feedback is taken seriously. I mean, it goes to the highest levels in Microsoft and especially if you've got numerous people saying the same thing, um, 
that this should be done differently or we need these commands or whatever. Um, that is that is how they put an emphasis on what direction they're moving. It's got to be fun to have such a hand-on um, with something that you've kind of been following for so long. Um, and, you know, you mentioned feedback. And that is definitely something that mature organizations or anyone who's really trying to deliver a good experience or a good product takes very seriously. And from all the conversations I've had with people at Microsoft, they are PowerShell-oriented Microsoft people are very interested in getting all feedback, all feedback. And like you said, they do take it seriously. From my, as an outsider, seeing the way that people act, they definitely take it serious. Um, and that's a great way to kind of start getting involved in the community. If you see something that doesn't make sense, create an issue about it. Start a conversation. Um, maybe the documentation needs to be improved to explain things better, or maybe there's some kind of uh, other things that need to be done, or they can just take the feedback as, hey, this particular topic is confusing for people. Yeah, and occasionally I'll see um, somebody ranting about something on Twitter, and when I do see those, I'll take it to the to the Azure PowerShell team. But of course, I don't spend all day on Twitter either, so I don't always see those things. So what I would recommend, even if you've got a rant and you want to rant about it on Twitter, is go ahead and log a GitHub issue and then do your rant on Twitter, but provide the link to the GitHub issue so that um, other people who see that can go out there to the GitHub issue and say, yeah, I agree with this, or I've had this problem too, or whatever. And you mentioned Twitter, and I don't, I don't work for Microsoft. I don't know the exact motivations, but there, one of the things that I see if someone joins the PowerShell team for the first time, one of the things that I always see is they join Twitter and they start following people who are active in the community um, because I imagine they want to get involved and they want to hear that feedback and be part of it. So uh, Twitter is a bit of an active space in the PowerShell community. Um, and it's, it's really cool to see that, that people who actually work on the product are involved and proactively following people in the community so that they can kind of get in the mix. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I see things all the time from the PowerShell team where somebody who can actually make a difference, they'll come and they'll say, okay, that's good feedback or please log an issue or whatever. I mean, they do provide some feedback on Twitter, even though that's not a, uh, it's not like a, an official support mechanism. You know, we prefer GitHub issues, but we, uh, we just like you said, the community is very active on Twitter. So we do, we do monitor it as best we can. So the other thing is, uh, the PowerShell team has a community call uh, once a month, and I believe, um, and I'm not sure when this episode will be posted, so I won't give you a specific date for this month, but there is, uh, if you follow the uh, PowerShell team on Twitter, you'll see when those happen. There's also, I believe, a uh, DSC uh, call. I'm not sure what the cadence is on those. Um, and then there's a P PowerShell community blog and it's it's referenced in the uh, the session that me and Sean Wheeler did for the PowerShell Summit. But it's a place that, hey, maybe you don't want to have your own blog. You don't want to have the hassle of maintaining it and all that sort of stuff. But you've got something really cool that you've done with PowerShell. So you can actually submit it and have it published on the, the PowerShell community blog. And to mention, you mentioned the PowerShell uh, community call. That's the third Thursday of every month. Um, and if you check out the PowerShell slash PowerShell dash RFC um, repository on GitHub, you can see more information about that. And even um, 
participate in the conversation about what topics are brought up and things like that. There's some cool stuff there and they're trying to get more engaged with the community in those. And that's a way for you to be in a meeting with the PowerShell team, hear about what's going on, give opportunities to provide feedback, to ask questions, to kind of just see where PowerShell is going and what's going on with the community. Um, I believe last time I attended, I might've missed a month, but I think it might've been just last month. Um, Mike Kanekos was starting to do more kind of like community engagement stuff. So whenever I look at the PowerShell team from the outside, there's a lot of really cool promising things going on. Um, like the working groups, the community call, there's a lot of awesome momentum that I'm seeing as an outsider. Yeah, me um, doing PowerShell, it put a lot of fun back in, in doing IT related work. And um one thing I would recommend for people who are just getting started, so I would learn, I would try to learn PowerShell, but in addition to that technology, I would try to learn some Markdown because even in like Git repos, your README and different things are written in Markdown. Uh, and with that, I would learn some source control. And my preference is Git and GitHub, but there are other options out there as well. There are, but you're going to find the majority of projects in the PowerShell space are with Git on GitHub, but maybe internally use something else or whatever, some kind of side project. You like GitLab, that's awesome too. You know, there's other options for sure. But just from my perspective, you're going to experience GitHub if you want to look at a lot of the projects out there in the world. But yeah, we haven't done an episode on Git yet. We definitely need to introduce our audience to Git in more detail. Um, we mentioned repositories and stuff, but I think like an intro to like, hey, what is Git? When would we use it? How is Git different than GitHub? Because they both have Git and Git's a weird word. So what's going on here? So I have the perfect person for that and I'll uh, share it with you offline. So we, we did talk earlier about Be The Master. And a lot of people, if they listen to this, they know that Andrew is the master at shilling our podcast. Yes, that is the line of thinking that everyone who's listened before went through. Thank you, Jordan. Um, well, yeah, it's that time. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we've had a fantastic episode. I've had a great conversation. Been talking for quite a while, learning a lot of things, going places. We've, we've gone through a career. I mean, a lot of exciting stuff there. Um, we were joined by Mike freaking Robbins. That's what, in my opinion, the F stands for. Um, love it. And he graced us with a lot of great information. And if you appreciated it, if you've listened this long, I mean, this has been quite the conversation. You're a friend of ours. Welcome. You're our people. We like you. Do you like us? Give us a five-star review on uh, your podcast platform of choice. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit the thumbs up. Say something if you got something to say. Hit subscribe, whatever. Um, if you have an email that you'd like to send us, you can email us at powershell at pdq.com. We'll read it. If you have a Twitter, who doesn't? probably some people join Twitter in the PowerShell way. Send us a message on, send us a tweet on Twitter at PowerShell pod, and you can keep track of whatever we're doing on there. Um, thank you so much to our awesome guest, Mike Robbins. Um, really been around the community for a while. Learned a lot from you. It's awesome to finally have you on the episode. I just want to say, Mike, I really appreciate you were the, one of the first people that came up to us. Uh, saying you listen to the podcast and with some advice that we could follow on how to improve. And we took that to heart and we think that we're better for it. So I appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. And, and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. It all makes sense.
starts now. <laughs> the PowerShell Podcast is a production of BDQ.com.